Caught Offside with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught Offside from beautiful Caught Offside Towers on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and from an apartment in Brooklyn, New York, Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. What's up, brother? It's a, it's a beautiful apartment. You've been in it. I love your apartment. The only problem is that it's also inhabited by a cat, which I'm allergic to. Nothing against cats. It's just hard for me to be in there for an extended period of time before I start to sneeze and my eyes water and I get, it's just, it's not a pleasant experience. You spent a whole party or maybe even two Christmas parties in here with cat. That's true. And, and, I, were, and I even and spent, fine. I even spent more, I wasn't fine. You don't know what I was like. It's not easy. No, but, but people, I even, I even spent more time there than most guests as I arrived promptly right at eight o'clock. Yeah. The objection, the objection to you wasn't that, uh, you know, oh no, here comes Andrew. He's got a problem with the cat. It's that most of the people you met at the party found you quite distasteful. I don't remember that being the case at all. I made a lot of friends there. It's true. What a weekend. What a weekend, Andrew. Yeah, I know it really was. And I wanted to start JJ with a tweet that I got. So you, you texted me before Liverpool, Manchester city. We're going to talk about all these games, of course. Well, really, we're going to kind of focus on the top of the table because we're at the second international break and the top of the table has been just as compelling as I think we predicted it to be before the season, maybe even more so. And so I kind of want to go a little bit deep on how things are shaping up so far. Uh, little did I know, Mark Ogden is of, of similar minds. I saw at ESPN FC one of the lead stories. The lead story today was kind of a similar look at the how the top six have fared up to this point. Uh, so we're going to do that. Um, and you, shortly before Liverpool-Manchester City kicked off, as I am often to do, you, you DVR'd the game and you texted me because I guess you couldn't watch it live and you said, hey, I'm mm. DVRing, no spoilers, please. And I said, yeah, fair enough. I, I, we've, I've been there, certainly. I, I, I live by that. Um, and so I get it. So, yeah, I said, of course not. And then you took to Twitter and you tweeted that as if you like expected no one on Twitter to, to tweet about the biggest game of the weekend. Attention, everyone on this app. No one talk about this game because I'm DVRing it. But So the funny thing was, though, after that happened, I wasn't even thinking about this. So De Bruyne scores the equalizer late in the game. And it didn't even dawn on me, but... <laughs> One of our listeners, who is now maybe my favorite listener, at Misael Romero, he tweeted this to me. He said, please, at A. Gunling, text JJ that KDB has been raptured into heaven. It's a perfect full circle moment. Ah. Sometimes our listeners remember more about this show than we do. What was that? It was Manchester. Was it Man City Tottenham? And it I, was Man City Tottenham. And you I, said you, you I, weren't deep. Right. You I hadn't t- I texted you and I said, I'm DVRing this game. Please don't say anything. And so you said, yeah, yeah, of course I won't. And then a little while later, I get a text message from you saying, I can't help it. Kevin De Bruyne has been raptured into heaven. No, you absolute, you bald-faced liar. You absolute bald-faced liar. I didn't say I can't help it. I did. I gave you, two absurdist scenarios, two things that didn't happen. But One it of did. Them, he scored a goal. You would only text me that if he did something unbelievable, and he scored a goal. What? Andrew, and to this day, I don't know why you felt compelled to do that. Andrew, getting raptured make, into heaven is a is a moment of beauty. And why did you feel the need no, to say anything? I, I should have. I should have texted way, you that he was raptured into heaven. Your your biblical study, a thing of beauty. Um, I. 
I really don't want to go down this road, but you know, heaven. Some you know. some people some people will be raptured into heaven, leaving the other non-believers to toil in the fires of hell on earth. But what it all means about? the same what thing. What are you talking? It about? all means the same thing that Kevin De Bruyne did something spectacular. You would only text that to me if he had done something incredible. I after I had told you no spoilers. Michel Romero is right. I was I should have texted that to you when he scored that goal. I'm mad that I missed the opportunity. Well, you know what, dummy? It wouldn't have mattered anyway because I turned off all my notifications, everything. I was coaching, and so the game clashed with it. And I said, I've made a commitment to this team, so we're going we're gonna to coach this game. My friend was going to record it, and we we're going to play it on the 55-inch screen back at the club afterwards. I, I warned everyone in my text list, don't text me, just in case somehow the iOS app didn't work and something slipped through the net. I made sure nobody could get in contact with me. Yeah. If my apartment was on fire, if my cat, my aforementioned cat, had decided to run for Congress, I wouldn't have known about it because I had everything off my phone. I was just coaching and I went, so it wouldn't have worked. You're mean-spirited, uh, yeah. totally, by the way. I'm totally- mean-spirited. Things that I've never actually done versus you who have done it multiple times. But yeah, I- I'm mean-spirited, okay. Let's move on. Let's stop the bickering and move on to what was a wonderful, heavenly performance straight from um, the best possible uh, images of of paradise. The rapture. Oh, man. It really, it it might be, it's funny, Liverpool, if I were ranking games of the season as I contemplate the Devonlings at the end of the year, uh, Liverpool might have the first and second best game so far this year between this one and the one they just played against Brentford. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And um, by the way, another, uh, I know this is off topic a bit, another great weekend for old Brentford Yeah, uh, in the derby against West Ham. Um, yeah, this was a brilliant game. We should probably qualify it. City uh, were the main protagonists in the first half and didn't take any other chances. All the kind of back and forth happened in the second half. So it was probably the best 45 minutes uh, of the season so far. It was so good. It was, it was like, it was high-level stuff. It really was. And even at the end of the game, if you, if you saw the post-match interviews, I mean, Pep Guardiola, because of, I guess, his first, his early introductions to Anfield as Manchester City manager, anything that's not a pummeling, in the first 15 minutes where you're absolutely shell-shocked is good. But he really seemed to like be enthused about what he saw, the way his team played, as he should be, and the atmosphere and just the whole scenario of the game. Um, it's the first, not the first, but it was a real post-COVID football moment where you're like, this is really, truly why we sit down to watch games in the expectation of action like this. Yeah, I think great man. I think anybody who who loves the sport can understand when they're when they've been involved in something special. And I think this game rose to that to that level, not just because of the atmosphere, but because of the quality of the two teams. And you're right, just like kind of the frenetic pace in which the second half in particular was played with. Um, but I don't want to entirely gloss over the first half. I know the action occurred in the second, but um, Manchester City did play well, and there were a couple moments there. I mean, the Bernardo Silva run through the Liverpool defense yeah. was absolutely breathtaking, and they nearly finished it off. If I think Phil Foden, if he takes that—I know it's tough sometimes to take it first time, 
Uh, but the touch, I think, allowed Allison to maybe get into a better position to stop that. If, if Foden takes it on the first touch, maybe he, he's got a better shot of scoring that goal. It, it would have been – I mean, it right away goes right near the top of the list for goal of the season if it happens. And then um, later in the uh, in the first half, I think it was Jao Cancelo who played in a perfect ball to De Bruyne, who was by himself a free-diving header, and he just skies it over the bar. Yeah, he got that badly wrong. Yeah, he got underneath it way too much, and it, it, it flew up off his head in a situation that I think a lot of Manchester City fans would like to have that one back because he's by, he's alone. He's alone. So Man City, they they played very well in that first half, but they just they could not cap it off with a goal. And oftentimes, especially against Liverpool, if you leave them that lifeline, they will pounce. And that is absolutely what happened in the second half. Klopp described uh, Liverpool as not having played enough football, which in a game of football is problematic, which which I, I, I think I understood well, what he meant. But, but, I, but it's, I do it's think... problematic for them because of how they like to play. Right. Like they're, well, they're not going to just set up shop and defend the hell out of a game against Manchester City. They believe that, you know, no one prevents us from playing the way that we want to play. We see, I think, I think Manchester City will be on any given day, will be in a game in a, in a proper tight game with Liverpool, as long as they withstand, particularly when it's at Anfield, if they withstand the first 15 minutes of onslaught and that never really happened for Liverpool. So once that kind of was taken away and once the the crowd couldn't feed off that, you know, heavy metal start, City were, were really comfortable. And they, they were targeting James Milner, quite rightly so. Uh, I know we talked about uh, Dallow and the skinning he got uh, mm. against uh, Villarreal in last week's Champions League for Manchester United. Milner had a, a similar torrid time against Phil Foden. Was Phil Foden even alive when James Milner made his debut? I don't think he was. Is this an actual question? I don't think he was. So when he made his professional football debut at age 15 or 16... Well, Phil Foden was born in 2000. Well, then he wasn't. Phil Foden was not born when James Milner played his first professional football game for Leeds United. So it was a 35-year-old against, what, a 19-year-old or 20-year-old. And and it showed. And it was... uh, Oh, yeah. Well, James Milner... he was with Leeds United's youth team from 96 to 02, but he made, it looks like he made his professional debut in 2002. Oh, maybe. Oh, yeah, maybe. Okay, I've got that wrong. So he was. But it's close. Two, he was. Yeah. He was a toddler, basically. Basically, what I'm saying yeah. is there was an age disparity. And there is a point that you get to when you're not an out and out fullback uh, where you're being faced up against Phil Foden. And it was like, how can we get the ball to him? It was so glaring that Ederson played probably one of the passes of the season straight from the box right into that area where Foden uh, was running onto it against Milner. I mean, it was glaring. And Klopp, like, got away with it in this game for so long. In fact, he didn't he didn't swap out Milner till like, the, the he 70th. Was, he was outrageously fortunate that he had the chance to swap out Milner. It was is... It's utter madness that he was not sent off. Yeah. Total uh, madness. But, 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 Andrew, that tackle you were speaking of the – I mean, there was – could have been, could, of, he could have received three yellows in this game. Yeah, he wasn't he even have. called for a foul on the trip of Phil Foden in the first half. He could have, but the glaring one was the... Uh, Stuck oh, his leg out. Well, was I mean, it was a game of dangling legs. Uh, there was another one, that, but uh, obviously wasn't a foul, was Joao Cancelo's pathetic attempt to stop Mo Salah in the lead-up to the first goal, mm. where he just 
Most- he's square on. He goes, oh, I'm in trouble here. Just stick a leg out, see what happens. And Fabinho's pretty pathetic attempt too, where he's square on to Bernardo Silva in the run up to the Foden goal. And he just sticks a leg out. But but going back to James Milner, um, that yeah, that's a, that's a second yellow. It's a red card. Uh, Bernardo Silva f- flipped over him in a horrifying fashion. He landed on his head. Mm-hmm. It was really bad. And that section of the field, uh, Liverpool fans and, and Manchester United fans will remember, is where Jamie Carragher raked his studs down the shin of Nanny and didn't get sent off either. Well, so Pep, it, Pep had an explanation for it afterwards. Well, what did he say? He basically said, well, this, this is Anfield. And it's, this is, happens at Old Trafford, too. Uh, you, I, I'm not going to buy that one. What I'm going to say, this is the season of let it flow. Um, and so uh, maybe that played a part in it too. But yeah, no, I'm not going to try and sit here and defend that. I think he should have been off the field. Joe Gomez shouldn't have had the opportunity to come on and slot in into that Liverpool back line, but he did. And, um, and yeah, it was, uh, it was one of the moments where, where Liverpool rode their luck. But where they did not ride their luck, Andrew, was in the execution of what will probably go down as one of the great, great Liverpool goals and one of the great Mo Salah goals. What a player. Even the goal that he didn't score, the assist he had to Sadio Mane, the way he begins yeah. the move with just the little flick uh, to get it started down that right side and then a perfect ball into Mane, who finishes really well in his own yeah. right. Oh, yeah. Um, this guy, like, you just wonder now. I went on Sky Sports' website, and JJ, it's just like, it's like everyone has reached the same revelation at the same time. Where it's like, we've all known uh, that Mo Salah is an unbelievable player for years now. Um, but it's like it took this moment over the weekend for everyone to be like, oh, oh, wait, he's he might be the best in the world right now. And like Sky Sports' website is just like one article after another after another lauding this guy for this performance, and they're right to do so. Uh, he's He has leveled up, I believe, in terms of what tier he's in right now in, in world football. Oh, I think so. His consistency, his range of finishing, he's absolutely brilliant. Now, usually at this juncture on a, on a podcast, Andrew, I engage in, in trying to explain to people how that goal was, how that goal made me felt. But I want to do an, an experiment here. So I want people to close their eyes, think of the goal, and as you are imagining it in your mind's eye, listen to this. You okay? Good Lord. You need a minute? I am. I'll be back in a second. <laughs> just just beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. See in your mind as you hear the crowd react to every turn. The first turn. The second turn. It just I mean, it was it was something absolutely special. Something something just beautiful. Jamie Carragher said about Mo Salah, uh, I don't think there's anyone playing better in the world or in Europe at the moment. Um, and then uh, I saw Barney Rone had a column at The Guardian about him, which is really good. Uh, and he says this about Mo Salah's importance to Liverpool, which I think is important to highlight. Uh, 
we'll talk about more of that in a sec, but Barney Rone says, it's hard to think of other players who have had such an obviously transformative effect. Alex Ferguson had Eric Cantona. Yaya Torre's arrival shifted City from a hopeful project into a culture of relentless success. Salah's first season was Klopp's third at Anfield. Liverpool had improved from eighth to fourth in that time, at which point, ignition. Yeah, I, so- I, br- I bring this paragraph up in particular because um, for whatever reason, we've talked about this before, Mo Salah, for, for all his greatness and for everything that he's done for Liverpool, there has always been this kind of tinge of frustration with him, whether it's you know people who think sometimes he dives too much or Liber- even Liverpool fans who sometimes think he forces shots when if he plays it back to Firmino, they score a goal. Um, and I feel like now we're kind of reaching a point with this guy where where much of that criticism is evaporating and people are, are kind of seeing here just how great he is and just how important he has been to Liverpool. His numbers, Andrew, change. You know, it, it's it's hard to keep that argument of frustration with him, which is something I've sensed. I told you about my friend Colm, who regularly... Uh, voiced frustration over the last two seasons with him at certain moments. But I, I never felt that. He's just, he's an unbelievable goal scorer. And, and Barney Roney is, is so right about it. He, he's he been the ignition point. He was the the, the, the changing point for Liverpool. Um, and as good as Sadio Mane is and as good as Roberto Firmino are, this guy is on, as a goal scorer, is on an absolute, on another level. And... If you consider the current struggles of the other pretenders for for the crown of best player in the world right now, why not? Why why wouldn't you say Mo Salah? Absolutely. Why wouldn't you? I think it's. Um, I think right now, you know, we'll we'll see what happens as Messi continues to kind of find his sea legs at a new site with PSG, uh, and you know, Ronaldo I think is transitioning into kind of the next phase. He has been transitioning into the next phase of his career where he's more just pure goal scorer and, and not a whole lot else, which is fine. Still a great player. But Salah right now, he's 29. You know, he's kind of in that moment. I think you're you're talking about a group right now of of what? I mean, I, I haven't written any list down in front of me, but what would you say? It's kind of well, Salah, well, Lewandowski. Well, but now, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's be well, let's be specific here. We're talking about the best player in the world. We're we're very much weighted towards the forwards. We're not even talking about the number tens really, and we're not even focusing on central midfielders. This is the forwards. So you'd be saying Salah, Lewandowski. Um, I mean, look, he, Messi and Neymar, Mbappe—they're—they're they're all still in Kylian that conversation. Mbappe is in there still, despite his current struggles. Um, but that's—that's that's the kind of. Uh, would I include? Maybe I—I'd I'd throw Chiesa in there. Oof. Ah, uh, yeah, the potential he's shown. He's just right. European—he's won but, a European championship. I mean, you're right, but like, you're going to put him in the same category. Like, he's on his way, certainly. He's not. He's in. I'm, I'm just, he's in the Salah Mbappe category. No, not yet. He's not. No, I, I, I'm. I'm just. I'm throwing out names here, and feel free to bat them away. Gary Neville has some opinions on this, Andrew. Yeah, he sure does. Here he is on Sky. He's the real thing and beyond. I mean, we talk about Messi and Ronaldo, and we 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 don't put Salah into that category. We can't. But the new wave of great players in the world, you know, Mbappe. Salah is there. I know he's 29 years of age, but really. The goals that he scored, the way in which he plays for Liverpool, his consistency. And even when the team aren't playing well, you've got this incredible talent. I know sometimes we talk about a front three with Liverpool. We talk about Firmino, Mane and Salah. We put them all together. But he is a level above the other two. And Salah is a world-class player. 
could play in any team in the world at any time in history of football. His goal record is special. And that, that goal to deliver was... It was an unbelievable goal. That really was. That goal, Andrew, I think... I tweeted about this. I think there's a signature goal that I think of and I associate it with a player. So Cantona's uh, clipped goal against Sunderland where he raises his arms out afterwards in mm -hmm. celebration. Uh, instantly, that kind of clip when I see it, I think that's the Eric Cantona goal. Uh, when I think about... <laughs> um, when I think about Bergkamp, I think of a, a control off a long pass and then a volley. Yeah, the like, or the Netherlands one that he scored. The Netherlands one or the one against Leicester uh, for Arsenal. That's that's what I think of. And when I think of the, the, the quintessential Mo Salah goal, I think of the goal against Watford where he wriggles through, keeps his balance and then flicks it past the keeper. The goal against Tottenham in the 2-2. Two -two. Mm -hmm. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Great game. Oh, great game. Brilliant goal. Should have been the winner too. Very similar. That should have been the winner too. Uh, except Harry Kane scored a penalty late on. And um, and I think of this goal too. I think that is the signature Mo Salah goal. And this weekend, you're talking about Sky and and them kind of just waxing lyrical about this guy. This weekend, Andrew, in the minds of Liverpool fans, it, I think it had happened already, but this will certainly look to coagulate the sentiment it becomes a serious inflection point now for FSG and how they deal with this contract and what they do and whether they break their pay structure because he wants to be the best paid player in the English Premier League. And right now, how could you argue with that? And it also, it also teases the, the tension even further between the fans and FSG who are there is enough of a cohort who are not happy with FSG after the inactivity of the summer, after earlier in the spring with the whole Super League. They have to get this right, Andrew. This is such a tricky one. So he's on what, roughly two hundred thousand a week. Mm. He's not the high, I, I, he's I'm not, not the highest. Sure. Okay, the story I was reading earlier, I think it said two hundred thousand a week. He's, Sounds right. He's which would mean he's not the highest paid player on his own team. Van Dyke is, I think, 220. And Salah wants to be in that De Bruyne class of around, I think it's 380 a week. JJ, this is not as easy as it would seem in this moment. He's going to be 30. That's kind of a magic number for players who rely on, you know, speed and, and agility and, you know, staving off injury. Which he, he is, for the most part, managed to do throughout his time at Liverpool, with a couple of small exceptions. Mm. Um, this is this is a tricky one. This balance of paying a player for what he's done versus what you think he will do. And you're right. I wonder. Fan pressure is going to be entirely on the side of Salah. They've got to be just obsessed with this guy right now. And it puts FSG in a weird moment, in a weird place in time for them. Where you're right. For all the good work they've done there. You know, fan sentiment is not on their side. Will they just, will they sign him up to a mega deal just to kind of keep people happy and, and maybe get another couple great seasons out of Sala and then experience a possible drop off? Or will they sell high and think, you know, we're Liverpool, we can attract talent, we'll be fine. No one player's bigger than the club. Um, I don't know. This is, I think this is a tricky one. My view is you're not replacing those goals. Not easily, maybe not at all. And 
the money you'll have to spend in the attempts or maybe multiple attempts it'll take to bring in the players to do that will be um will be will be more probably than what you'll have to play Salah. Now, James Pierce he didn't crunch the numbers because we don't know exactly what we're talking about here, but in the Athletic he said neither party has divulged the sums discussed. But if, for example, Salah wanted three hundred and fifty thousand per week over the next four years, that would represent an outlay of seventy two point eight million. Yes, a big commitment, but not in the context of trying to buy a player who could replicate his impact, which is exactly how I feel. Mm-hmm. He is very robust. He is very durable. Um I would do it, Andrew, um, but if we've learned anything about the Boston Red Sox since the early 2000s and the way FSG operate, this this really... I know they've tied Virgil van Dyke and, and Henderson into contracts too, um, but this won't, this won't sit well with them. Well, what you're saying about the Red Sox is essentially they are not afraid to reset. And when they do, oftentimes they come back as strong or stronger than before. Now, I know this is just because it's the same ownership doesn't mean that it's going to work no. exactly the same way. Um, but if but I'm just I'm just putting that out there for Liverpool fans who aren't necessarily super familiar with what the methodology has been with the other team that they own. So if if John Henry does carry that sort of attitude into all of his businesses, then I don't know. I don't know if they'll if they'll go for it. I think they should do it. I really do. Uh, and you know. We talk about 30 as the magic number, but there are examples right now. Lewandowski is one of players who have hit that number and continue to be very, very um, productive. And that is what you would hope with, with Mo Salah. I don't see any reason why that wouldn't be be the case considering his history. Um, I but, would sign, for, to go on the record, by the way, I, I would sign him as well. Yeah. I, I would so. sign him as well. Um, mm. we, we should say, with regards to this game, uh, there, there was another team involved. I, I want to give credit to Manchester City in that, um, you know, they like you've talked about. They do have a history, not a great one, against this club in that building, and there were certainly moments in this game where they could have hung their heads and gotten down. Not getting a goal after that first half, you know, that and then Liverpool scoring first after all that good work. They came right back. They equalized. You know, James Milner not getting sent off. They could have get, you know, could have gotten angry. Always here. We never get calls here. Yeah, and then Liverpool go and take the lead on an unbelievable goal that could have just shattered whatever belief they had left in that game and p- pushed all the momentum to Liverpool's side. They came right back four minutes later and equalized. So, you know, credit to them. I think they showed a lot of, of not just their talent in this game, which we know they have, but I think a lot of character as well. Certainly, Andrew. And what impressed me was, you know, like I said, weathering the first few 10, 15 minutes where Liverpool didn't create the kind of problems that they have in the past for Manchester City. But nevertheless, City settled into the game. Um, think about this. It's the same. They didn't, okay, they probably didn't do exactly the same thing that they did to Chelsea. But what they what they did do was, and it's the one thing that is very hard to have an answer for, and, and Jurgen Klopp alluded to it, what do you do when you can't get the ball off them? Like in that first half when City went for fairly extended periods of, of keeping the ball, targeting and probing Liverpool and at, at the right-back position. It's tough, man. It's it's very hard to find a response Um and especially when Liverpool were not 
quite doing what Liverpool regularly do and City were keeping the ball. It looked ominous for a while. It really did. By the end, I was with a bunch of Liverpool supporters, as I said before, watching the game and they, everyone was just looking at each other with about 37 minutes on the clock and they're like, we, we need to get to this this thing to half time as, as quickly as possible. What was it? I heard Jurgen Klopp say afterwards something to the effect of, you know, thank God there are two halves. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he's he makes a good point. Um, you know, a couple other notes with Manchester City. Um, I think, JJ, I know you've kind of mentioned this a little bit, I think, last week or previous weeks. I think Gabriel Jesus is emerging as a nice story for Manchester City this season. He did brilliantly on that first goal to set up Phil Foden. I mean, the way he just kind of took it and danced through the Liverpool defense, played a perfect ball to Foden, who, from a tough angle, Foden did a nice job to score. Um, so, you know, that's Jesus is just somebody that I'm interested in. He's always kind of been in Sergio Aguero's shadow. They've they've kind of tinkered with what his best position is. Is he a straight up, you know, attacking forward? Is he somebody who should be playing out wide? Uh, and, and maybe now that Aguero's gone, maybe he doesn't feel you know that pressure from you know looking over his back every time he makes a mistake. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how he develops the rest of the season. Yeah, I I agree with that. And there's there's something else though. Do you remember? I can't. If you can recall which game it was at the start of the season where Jesus played well, maybe it was, maybe it was the Norwich game, and 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 Pep was really, you know, just like, oh, you know, the way he goes sometimes, it's like over the top in his praise, you know, so so good, he was so so good, um, and he he talked about Gabriel Jesus's parents being proud of him and all this stuff, but um, it was interesting. I can't remember the commentator who it was. I just I had. I imbibed so much. Maybe it was the NBC guys. I think it might have been Robbie Musto, actually. And after this game, they're still harping on, well, City don't have a center forward. And you just wonder what City could be if they had that striker. And, you know, Gabriel Jesus has the pressure of being himself and, and working his way uh, through through this, this City team and, and becoming more established than he has been in the past as a leading player for them. And yet in the noise in the background is about players that City haven't signed. Um, and it remains to be the case. And um, I mean, Phil, Phil Foden's going to score a lot of goals. He just I don't know like what exact position you want to define him as. He's going to score a lot of goals for them. He was, I said before the season he was going to be my pick to win the, um, the Golden Boot before the year until I found out he was going to miss the first month. Yeah. Yeah, I'd... Um... I, I, I don't, I, I'm not of the opinion that City, you know, absolutely need or needed Harry Kane to be a really, really dangerous and effective football team. But games like that at the weekend and certainly in that first half kind of will raise that question. I mean, Pep is sick and tired of it. He gets it at every press conference and mm-hmm. you can tell he's kind of irritated by it. And maybe that prompted his his fulsome praise of, of Gabriel Jesus in the past, but I, I am like you. I am curious to see how this season pans out with that city front line. I'm also curious about uh, Jack Grealish as well and how his role evolves. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and one other thing I wanted to say about this game too, JJ, uh, I, I think Rodri deserves a goal for the goal that he denied from Fabinho. Unbelievable block of that shot. It's, it's, it's really, it was really out of nowhere. It's like, where's he come from? When Just I like at, swooping in, yeah, as it was happening, I was thinking, well, that's that's three two. Like there was no part of me that thought a goal wasn't about to be scored there. Incredible moment. I, I watching it again though. Fabinho's first touch just means the ball goes a little bit away, so he's stretching mm-hmm. 
when he makes the contact, but even still, out of nowhere, it's it's just it's just a a brilliant block. Yeah, um, unbelievable game. Really, really fun to cap off this past weekend and take us into the second international break, the October international break. The top of the table has been extremely compelling. All of these teams look to be very good uh, in varying degrees, and so I wanted to just kind of talk a little bit more about it. I know it. I know it is painfully early, and this is kind of in some ways a silly exercise but i just but you you are a painful person so you you like to do these What does things. that mean exactly? I don't know. You know okay. what? That was cheap and i take it back. Thank you. Um you know, one thing with this with this title race that i even after just 7 games that is interesting to me. I think one of kind of the telltale signs of a legit title race is that i feel like with each week i'm kind of changing my mind on like you know, when the season started, I thought it was Man City's to lose. Then we played a few games. I thought, you know what? I think Chelsea are the best team in the league. But we weren't overly impressed with what Chelsea were doing. Then it kind of became, well, you know what? Look at what Liverpool are doing right now. Look how they're scoring goals. Maybe they're back. Uh, and then it sort of like morphed back to Manchester City with some of their recent results. All the while, we're kind of waiting for Manchester United to explode to life with these signings that they've made. It's just been fascinating to watch sort of the ebb and flow, even just, you know, two, are we even two and a half months into the season? I, you know, me and you were on the Chelsea bus for a little bit, and, and then we started to wonder, particularly after the way City played against them, and, you know, will they score enough goals, even though we thought Lukaku was such a great signing? Um, yeah, it's it's interesting to me. I think I think you, you watch the two best teams in the league at the weekend. I... I I think that now, but you look at the personnel that both che- that Chelsea have. You look at the personnel that United have, even though they're they're playing pretty pretty poorly. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to write anybody off at this point. I even beyond the fact that it's early. You know, it's not like Liverpool have been perfect by by no measure. Have they been perfect? I I met a, a friend of mine yesterday. He's a Liverpool fan. And he was talking, those three draws are going to kill us. Mm-hmm. So the yeah, one against no, Chelsea. I mean, you shouldn't be conceding three to Brentford. I don't care what kind of form Brentford have right. been in. It's Liverpool. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah, there's um, – it's, it's really, really interesting. There's only one team, I think, that won't do it in their current state unless they do something radical, which I don't think they're going to do. Um, but I don't think United – are going to be in the mix in the, at the end. And I say that with quite a bit of trepidation because if you look at the artillery they have, if right. you look at the weapons they have, you know, that, that kind of flies in the face of that assessment. But when you, when, you saw, when you saw Liverpool and City this weekend, it's very hard to put United in that same category. Well, that's sim- And you're right. You're right to feel that way because we have yet to see it from United. Like, you know... If we're talking about who's going to be in this for the long haul, any to believe that Manchester United are right there with City, Chelsea, and Liverpool is to believe that something will change from the status quo. Whether that is mm. what you're hinting at, I think when you say if something drastic happens, you're hinting at if they make some kind of manager change, which is not... I don't believe that's in the cards. Uh, they, they've recently backed him, not just with signings, but with a contract. Uh, so I don't think he's going anywhere, at least not this season, barring something really unforeseen. Yeah, and, and they're in the situation where they have, you know, Edward's not gone yet. So he's not going to do it. This is his firm belief that this was the right decision to make Ole Gunnar Solskjaer the manager. 
and he's going to pursue that to the end. And the end for Ed Woodward is in, what, two months' time. So it's not going to happen before Christmas unless unless the, a new regime or, uh, you know, something happens at United in January, but maybe things get very bad. I don't know. But United are not, just performance-wise, not saying they're not a, they don't have good players. Performance-wise, they're not near it. Uh, no, not, not to what we've seen. I mean, look, I, with Manchester United, I think one of the things that it's kind of hard to quantify, but we've talked about this a little bit before the, like, look, okay. Look at some of these results with United draw with Everton, lost to Villa, lost to West Ham in both the cup and the league, uh, lost to young boys, draw with Southampton, barely beat Villarreal. You know, this is not like a who's who of Europe's elite. They are not feared. And much of this is happening at Old Trafford. They were poor at home last season. It's been much the same so far this season. And whatever fear factor was there in the past, whatever fear factor they thought might be reinvigorated with the um, the coming back of Cristiano Ronaldo, um, it's just it's just not there. Teams are not afraid of them in the way that they used to be. Oh no, that's that's absolutely true. Also, not playing Ronaldo was a, was a choice that was made at the weekend uh, where he had to come off the bench and, and really Everton should have won the game had, uh, had Tom Davies been a bit more relaxed uh, and taken the shot himself instead of trying to play in Yerry Mina. Did you see JJ afterwards? What uh, Sir Alex Ferguson, he was kind of caught on, there's like a YouTube video. Oh no. What, so, what, what was... okay. So I'm going to read this to you. This is about the decision that Ole made to not start Cristiano Ronaldo. This is in The Guardian. It says, In a video which emerged on Twitter, Ferguson, who played a significant role in bringing Ronaldo back to Old Trafford, is heard to question Solskjaer's team selection. So uh, he's filmed talking to the former MMA champion and diehard United fan, Khabib Nurmagomedov, in the, <laughs> in the director's lounge at Old Trafford. It's is, it is unbelievable. you got to see it. Just the... I don't know. It's just like a weird image of like these two guys having a conversation. They, um, I would never put them together. But so they're in the la- the director's lounge at Old Trafford after the game, and Ferguson appears to suggest that Ronaldo should have started. And you can kind of make it out. I was going to play the audio, but it's just it's impossible to hear. You kind of need like to just see it in writing. And Sir Alex says, um, I also think that when they saw Ronaldo wasn't playing, he's then interrupted by. Nurmagomedov, who points out that he did come on in the second half, and then Ferguson follows up by saying, yeah, of course, but I also think that when they, Everton, saw Ronaldo wasn't playing, and then it kind of, the subject changes. But what you're supposed to believe there is that Sir Alex is saying that when Everton, like, again, like I'm sort of talking about, the fear factor. If Ronaldo is supposed to be a guy who brings that back, and then Everton see he's not in the lineup, it kind of, like, reinvigorates Everton. And so I just I don't know I thought it was this dynamic between like Sir Alex as the overlord, Oli not doing what Sir Alex wants. I don't know. It I feel like there's just a weird dynamic brewing behind the Almost scenes. Almost two years shy of a decade since Sir Alex Ferguson left and appointed David Moyes because he did. That is what he did. He appointed David Moyes as his successor. Ferguson is still hanging around and getting Ronaldo back to the club. Uh, that's not a good look. That is, I don't think Alex Ferguson should have been allowed to have any more say in decision making at Manchester United after David Moyes. To be perfectly honest, I mean, 
You don't, Solskjaer doesn't need this. No, no, he certainly does not. But uh, I'm guessing that, you know, I mean, look, Solskjaer played for Sir Alex. Sir Alex is obviously a, a present figure um, still with this club in a, in a huge way. I'm sure they talk. Like, I'm sure it, it would surprise me if this wasn't something well, that Sir Alex said to him privately in addition to this. I, but don't, for, don't forget that Solskjaer invoked the name of, of Sir Alex Ferguson how many times when he initially got the job? You know, and how he was going to bring them back to, to the kind of values that Ferguson had instilled in him as a player. So it's, you know what, it's a it's been a mutually beneficial arrangement. Uh, but this is not this is not what... Solskjaer doesn't need this because there was already the... I don't know what... The leaked quotes from Ronaldo saying that we need to move the ball faster. You know, like as if Ronaldo's already muscling in doing... And then there was the... Obviously, there was the young boys scenario where Ronaldo was in, out in the technical area arcing instructions. Mm-hmm. Solskjaer doesn't need... He just doesn't need to be undermined like this any further when the performances of the team do that on their own. <laughs> now, now look, I'll say this about United because we're being negative on them and, and with, well, not without good reason. They, Christ, they, Andrew, they haven't you, played up to what we've What would you like us them. to do? No, I know, but, but I am going to say that in terms of teams, you know, in terms of this idea of who's in this title race for the long haul... Uh, I don't know that I can write off Manchester United just yet because of what their recent form has looked like. We do, I'm not doing that either, but I'm just like, saying it's it's hard to see it. Just remember, like this this Varane Maguire partnership is probably going to continue to gel. Varane has been pretty good so far. He's had a couple shaky moments, but overall, I have pretty good faith in that being a solid defensive partnership um, at central defense. They're still going to get Marcus Rashford back. You know, for whatever struggles they've had so far this season, they have had bright spots in that Mason Greenwood looks like he's developing into a real player. We've seen these flashes from Pogba where there are moments that I'm watching them and thinking, this guy's one of the best players in the world. If they can harness it, if it can be more consistent. But these these, these ifs are, are, you know. But they but Bruno Fernandes is not an if. You know, we know what he is and how great he's been. So, like, I still believe that the, I'm not picking them to win it. But I don't believe that they're going to fall out of this thing. I think that they are also in this for the long haul. I think the three we're talking about is Chelsea, Liverpool, and Manchester City. And some order of that at the moment. Now, we're talking about potential weaknesses. Liverpool will face January with both Mo Salah. Well, we expect Mo Salah to be with Egypt and Sadio Mane to be with Senegal for the African, the rescheduled African Cup of Nations. Right. Now, in terms of games, if I, and I'm, I'm, I, you know, you've got that heady mix of cup games and some league games in January. I don't think in terms of Premier League games that they're going to miss a lot in that month in January. I think it's maybe two fixtures. I, I, I'd have to go back and look. I'm talking off the top of my head now. But what if one of them gets injured there? What if Salah gets injured? What if they come back and they're just out of whack, out of form, tired? This this could be a potential wrinkle in Liverpool's title challenge as well. Also, Liverpool's depth, you know, can't dance around the fact that Klopp started Milner again at right back, a 35-year-old midfielder who's not really a fullback, who's deputized brilliantly over the years in that position, but he had to go in there to replace Trent Alexander-Arnold. Um, you know, there's... There's other things there. We Chelsea, should, we, should, we should mention real quick, while, while you mentioned the Africa Cup of Nations, I do have the list in front of me of 
all the players that will potentially be missing. Okay. So if you want to hear what the other title contenders will be missing as well, because you're right, Liverpool, Mo Salah with Egypt, Naby Keita with Guinea, and Sadio Mane with Senegal. Manchester City, uh, it's just Riyad Mahrez at Algeria. Manchester United, Eric Bailly for Ivory Coast, and Ahmad Diallo also for Ivory Coast. Chelsea, uh, Edward Mendy from Senegal, Ooh. and Hakim Ziyech for uh, Morocco. So these are all important players, maybe maybe a, a level down Not for Manchester United, but none rise to the level of Mo Salah's importance to Liverpool. And Sadio no. Mane, too, for no. God's sake. I mean, Edward Mendy obviously has been a, a huge bonus for Chelsea since they picked him up last season. But Salah and Mane missing, you're right, That that is something to keep in the back of your mind. Um, yeah, I, I just look at Manchester City. You know, we talked before about depth being such an important factor, especially when you're talking about other teams that are going to be competing on multiple fronts, trying to win every competition that they're involved with. Let's think about City for a sec. From from just this game over the weekend, JJ, Raheem Sterling didn't start. He did come on, didn't start. Mares, Stones, Ferran Torres, Ilkay Gundogan, Fernandinho, they all didn't even play. Like, this team is built for a lengthy run in the Premier League, the FA Cup, the Champions League, like they're built for all of it. Like Mares will go off and play with Algeria at the Africa Cup of Nations and they won't blink. Is that going to be the case for Liverpool like you talked about? So no. City is they are just built for this. Can we um can we talk about uh, two teams and I don't want to use the term imposter, but there's there's two teams that uh are in the upper echelons of the league table right now. Um both played well at the weekend. Uh, both got draws. Uh, against illustrious opponents, Everton and Brighton. Yeah. 14 points. Um, they're obviously not in a title race, but can they can they stay with where they are in, 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 in this lofty position in the league? Well, I think the question for those teams are, and you're right, I'm not trying to be disrespectful of either of them because they're, they're tied on points right now with both City and United. Um, so, yeah, I don't want to use the word imposters either. I don't believe that they're a part of the title race, but I think... Look, you're, if, if you're Everton and you've believed for years that you should be a part of at least a, a battle for a Champions League spot, can they remain in contention for that? Uh, you know, Brighton, can they be what, say, you know, West Ham were or what Sheffield United were a couple years ago um, and compete for a Europa League place? Um, I don't know. I'm thinking about Everton. Think, I'm thinking about Everton right now competing for a Champions League spot. Um, I mean, look, maybe they can be a top five, six, seven club, but I, I don't know. I don't know how realistic that feels to me. I think uh, to talk about the game at the weekend, which I enjoyed thoroughly. Um, I thought they were very good in stages against United, but I would say playing that way on the break probably suited Rafa's men, but. When they'd have to go out and win a game, take control of a game, that's when I'd wonder about how this squad is built. But they had serious pace and incision for Andres Townsend's goal. And, you know, like I said earlier, had Tom Davies not panicked at the big moment, that was a 2-1 win for Everton. Mm -hmm. Brighton, I watched them against Arsenal too in the rain at the Amex. Andrew, they should have won this game comfortably. To say they were, they found it easy to handle Arsenal is an understatement. But what they didn't find easy, and it's the thing they never find easy, is scoring goals. Um, and I'm looking at their forward line, their the potential players. All right, uh, Mo, uh, Neil Mope, he has four goals in seven appearances. He's got to keep that pace up. Trossard, he's got one goal. Danny Welbeck's got a goal. 
Um, you know, Aaron Connolly, as much as I love Aaron Connolly, is he a clinical finisher yet? No. Uh, Jurgen Lacadia that they signed, I mean, seems like not involved at all, really. Uh, where are the goals going to come from? If they don't come from there, are they going to come from midfield? I don't see it. Um, but they played brilliantly at the weekend, Andrew. They were so good. They handled Arsenal, like I said. And um, my, my problem is goals with them. And, and it's it's a failing that, that Graham Potter's team have had for a long, long time. And, um, you know, Arsenal should have been buoyant from the weekend, uh, from last weekend's win. And they come in, no European football, by the way. It's not like they're they're being occupied midweek. Plenty of time to rest and recoup, and they were they were poor. But I would I really want to give the credit to Brighton, who never let them play. Did you see JJ? Brighton have become sadly aware of kind of this this joke around them with XG and oh, no. and so the XG philosophy, one of your favorite Twitter accounts. Uh, they tweeted after the game what the XG was for that match. Brighton were 1.31. Arsenal were 0.38. The score was nil-nil. And Brighton, the official team Twitter account, off of that tweet, quote tweeted and said, oh, no, please not again. Yeah. <laughs> They're, they've become aware. Yeah. How could they not be? How could they not be? Now, I will say, in fairness, so far this season, overall, through seven matches, Brighton do have an, they have an XG of 7.4, and they've scored eight goals. So the, the narrative is dead, at least for now. Yeah, They're outscoring com- their XG. When it comes to that final pass to lead to a chance, when it comes to that final shot, whatever, they're just, they're just off. But look, they've been consistently good in the, in, in the systems that they play and the way they play football. Like, you've got to give Graham Potter credit. He's lost Ben White, right? Couldn't replace him. Brings Shane Duffy back from a horrific loan spell at Celtic, where I honestly thought Shane Duffy was done playing Premier League football, and slots him into a back three, and he's been great for them. Mm. He's been man of the match on a couple of occasions. Like that is really, really good man managing and coaching from Graham Potter. Uh, I had a chat with a Tottenham, another Tottenham uh, fan friend of mine, at the weekend, and he was bemoaning the fact that Tottenham didn't go and get. Potter instead of Nuno in the summer. I saw a report that that wasn't Tottenham's decision, that Graham Potter no. didn't want to go to Tottenham. Which he didn't want to work under Levy with the constraints that Levy would put on him. That's not, not what you good. want to hear. Uh, real quick, back to Everton for a sec before we close out this portion of the show, because uh, I don't want to be overly dismissive of them. Um, you know, just looking through them, already this season, three players with three goals. You know, Gray, Townsend, Calvert-Lewin. Decore already has four assists. He's been brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's, none of this is to even say, you know, we've only seen a little bit of Richarlison so far in the, the four starts that he's had. You know, so he hasn't even really had a chance to get going yet. Um, so you do wonder if, like, quietly they are building something nice here at this club. Um, so I, I hope, you know, saying before that, I don't think ultimately they're going to have enough to break through and in, into a Champions League place. I'm not trying to be dismissive of them. I, I, I really like what they've done so far this season. Um, it's just... I just think that they, it happens to be a year where there's a really tough wall to climb for, for any team outside of that top four. It's hard to argue Rafa hasn't made them better, though. Even with this mishmash of players from several different managers, I think he's, I think he's done a really good job so far. Yeah. Um, so there you go. Pretty interesting so far. This season has gotten off to a really fun start, uh, and I think that this title race, some, some years it can be tedious, um, 
you know, I know it's fun. Like a couple years ago when it was Liverpool, Man City, and it was for however epic that total race was. I know you always talked about how it, 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 in some ways for a neutral, which you were not, but for a neutral fan, it was almost boring in like the repetitiveness of it week in, week out. They just both yeah. win, 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 win. Uh, I think this one is going to be, I don't know, I think this one's going to be really interesting. You've got so many teams involved with it that I just feel like the twists and turns of the possible top-of-the-table title race here, I, I think it has potential to really be epic. I do. Please don't mush it. Please don't put the mush on it. No, I won't. I, I'm too busy mushing other things, which will be covered later on in this podcast. <laughs> okay, All good right. stuff. Uh, I'll tell By you the what, way, yeah, yeah. L- Later on in this podcast, I will be taking a, a trip to Italy and France. Can you believe that? Oh, all in one show. Two places Incredible. I've never been but would love to go to. Oh, Italy for me. Have to get there. You've never been? No, I've never been, but it just... You know me, Andrew. What's, My, uh, I've never, what's, in what's your favorite place you've ever been to? Wow. My favorite place I've ever been to is probably in the United States. Um, I have to think about that. Oh, I loved Santa Monica Beach. I just loved it. Mm. I was there one November, and it was amazing. And the weather was just sublime. The Pacific Ocean. I loved it. Yeah, that's a, yeah, I've never been myself, but I couldn't fault you for uh, for going with that. I'm going to think about this. I'm going to have a good long think. Really contemplate. Uh, I'll tell you what. Let's take a break. We'll come back. Uh, still a lot more to get to. We do have red cards and man of the match. They're back this week. And uh, we obviously we, we have to talk about what's happened uh, here in the United States with the NWSL uh, because this is a, a bad situation. And, uh, yeah, we've got to share some of our thoughts on what's gone on there. So still a lot to get to here on Caught Offside. Don't go anywhere. Oh, back now on Caught Offside. Um, JJ, I had mentioned on the last podcast that both of my boys had soccer this past weekend. Um, How are the young gundlings shaping up? Not very good. (laughs) Not very good. But what I wanted to tell you was we nearly missed soccer this past weekend. Oh, Because my two-year-old Luke is an animal. He's out of his mind. And I know millions of kids do this, but in my house, he's the only one that could. He goes up into his bedroom. I hear the door slam. He's running around. I can hear footsteps. And so I go upstairs because it's time for us to go to soccer. And I think, okay, come on, Luke. And I try to open the door, and he has locked it from the inside. Oh, no. And we cannot open it. These door handles are super old. The house is old, and the door handles are old. There's no way to get in from the outside. You know, I take a hammer. Because he's now hysterical. He's now scared. He's in his room. He can't get out. He does. He can't open the door. I guess he's not strong enough to twist the door handle enough to. Because it's one of those locks that you just push and then it, like it pops when you want to unlock it. You twist the door handle and it pops and you. Yeah, he's got his dad's weenie hands. But so he can't get out. He's hysterical. So I take a hammer <laughs> and smash off the doorknob. Good. Try <laughs> try to get in by like then tinkering. With it, I'm trying, you know, I'm looking on YouTube of different ways that people can pick locks. Like people talk, oh, just slip a credit card in through the door. Impossible. Nonsense. Couldn't, couldn't do it, with not at least not with this door. I'm sure people are going to tweet into the show and say, oh, just here, watch this. I'm telling you, you could have been in my house for 10 hours. It wasn't that kind of door. It wasn't going to work. And so sure enough, we called the fire department, JJ. They come. No. Sirens blaring. No. A full squad of eight firemen come barreling up our stairs. I thank them greatly. Um, 
They can't get the door open either. Now they're plotting, trying to put a ladder up outside to climb in through the window to get him. Oh, this, but they, they, which I still believe they could have done, but I think they were getting nervous too because they heard him hysterically crying. They don't know what's in the room if there's something dangerous. Their job is to just get him out as quickly as possible. The ladder thing, they didn't think it was a good idea. So out comes the axe. And they basically they don't. That's not gonna. That's not gonna scare him for life. <laughs> well, in the end, what wound up they didn't have to. They didn't have to bash the door into a thousand pieces. But they were able to like get the axe in, kind of like a a bit of a crease in the door, and kind of use it as leverage. And they oh just smashed on it for like a solid two or three minutes until finally the door popped open, and Luke was just beside himself, hysterical. I felt terrible for him, but I also was like I needed to like cool down. I was so annoyed. Um, but yeah, he's just that kid. He's just that kid, man. If it's if it's possible, the fire brigade. If oh. it's possible to find trouble, like the way water will always like find the lowest point. If there's trouble, Luke will find it. He's just that. Some kids are like that. They're just prone to it, and he's that kid. And I love him dearly with all my heart, with all my soul. But God, he just he's he's a tough one. He's a tricky one, JJ. Also, while we're talking about kids, congratulations to my sister. She just had a baby boy. How cool is that? I'm an uncle for the second time, but first time with my younger sister. That's that's special, man. I'm yeah. uh, I'm very uh, very happy for you. Thank you. Yeah, super cool. Can't wait that's, to meet him. That is special. That yeah. is really special. Now, are we done with gundling family trauma? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I should tell you, we did. We made it to soccer on time, even after all that. The fire brigade, though, Andrew. The brigade. <sighs> There's an embarrassment factor there oh, that you ha- you call them out and they're trooping up the stairs in the full gear. Yeah, I was Cause almost... Because you, you can't get a door open. But you're right. And I was I was very conscious of this the entire time it was happening. Yeah, I would be. Which is why I was kind of relieved that they also couldn't get it open. Oh, yeah. If they, <laughs> if they had literally turned it and right. it opened. Right. Like once they were like, okay, this is going to take the axe. I was like, oh, phew. All right. This was this was legit. Like Oh yeah, if you're calling them out, they it needs to be it needs to be dramatic enough. Right. I mean, if they had opened it like that, you would have been hmm. I guess guess you just got good technique. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, then, right, I would have said uh, I guess I loosened it for you, huh? Right, guys? Guys? Yeah. <laughs> oh, bye. Uh, anyway, yeah, so that happened over the weekend. Uh, let's see. Red Card's Man of the Match to come in a, a couple minutes here. I'm very excited. It's been a few weeks. We owe it to the listeners, the people, JJ. They want it. And this is, as we always say, an on-demand show. If you ask, you shall receive. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, we had to talk about what's going on in the NWSL. This story broke just after we finished recording last week, so we haven't had a chance to really comment on it in the time since. Um as by now, most of you, I'm sure, know, matches were postponed over the weekend in the wake of this reported wide-scale incidents of sexual abuse. Paul Riley of the North Carolina Courage had his contract immediately terminated due to his actions, and NWSL Commissioner Lisa Baird resigned as well. She also stepped down from her role on the U.S. Soccer Board of Directors. Uh, so this is, you know, rightfully so, taking its toll on some of the higher-ups and the authorities uh, of U.S. soccer and the NWSL. And, you know, it's interesting because Paul Riley, before being with the North Carolina Courage, was with the Portland Thorns. Yes. And there was reported abuse there as well. And Merritt Paulson spoke about it today, about what went on in Portland. And he said said that Riley had been suspended from his coaching role at the club in 2015 after a complaint over his behavior. 
Uh, and he said the club shared the results of its investigation with the NWSL at the time, but had been opaque with the public over the issue. He said, we made an opaque announcement about not renewing Riley's contract as opposed to explicitly announcing his termination, guided by what we, at the time, thought was the right thing to do out of respect for players' privacy, said Paulson. I deeply regret our role in what is clearly a systemic failure across women's professional soccer. Now, when when Riley was appointed manager of the Courage, mm-hmm. was their contact then from the thorns with the courage to say this is what happened at our organization was there any kind of communication from the league who knew about this saying you know did the league intervene and give the information to the courage that they had from the thorns and that is the part of this that is most disturbing is that clearly people multiple people knew of what paul riley was capable of and probably knew that it was likely to happen again, and it was allowed to, while people knew of this. Um, I think that is what is hardest to stomach, at least for me, that you know more soccer players, more women were put at risk of this guy um, while there were people out there who kind of sat quietly by and allowed it to happen. Um, and that's, you know, and you just wonder if, this is kind of another one of those landmark moments in this fight against sexual abuse. Um, because I imagine, JJ, that there are, like, the, the lesson here is that, you know, silence cannot be an option. Um, and, you know, I, I would have thought that there would be countless numbers of times in the past where that lesson would have been learned. But for whatever reason, for some people, it hadn't sunk in. I just wonder if there are coaches in soccer, in other sports, that are nervously awaiting the other shoe to drop, because I'm sure this is not just a Paul Riley issue. Um, you know, the, there was the story from the Washington Post about Richie Burke. Um, so we know that this is pervasive in this sport. And so... Or in this league, at least. Well, certainly um, in this league, but I'm sure... I, I have a feel. Look, this isn't based on anything other than my own intuition. I have a feeling it's not confined to this league. Um but that's just that's just my personal guess on this. Um, I think one of the interesting things for me has been the reaction of the U.S. Soccer Federation. It's been decisive. It's been serious um, in terms of an investigation, which is really what's needed. A thorough investigation here into these allegations. U.S. Soccer has retained Sally Q. Yates of King and Spalding LLP to lead an independent investigation into allegations of abusive behavior and sexual misconduct in women's professional soccer. Ms. Yates is a former U.S. attorney and deputy attorney general of the United States who has extensive experience conducting complex and highly sensitive investigations. She spent nearly three decades in public service at the Department of Justice under both Republican and Democratic administrations and now specializes in internal and independent investigations for public and private organizations. Um, This is the key paragraph for me. U.S. soccer takes seriously its responsibility to vigorously investigate the abhorrent conduct reported, gain a full and frank understanding of the factors that allowed it to happen, and take meaningful steps to prevent this from happening in the future. Ms. Yates' investigation will begin immediately, and she has been given full autonomy, access, and the necessary resources to follow the facts and evidence wherever they may lead. U.S. soccer remains committed to sharing the results of the investigation when it concludes. Um, That's... In terms of, of, of the legal world in the United States, this is a person of of serious reputation. Yeah. Um, and 
that is how seriously the U.S. Soccer Federation is taking it. Um, I, she she was the uh, lead prosecutor in the case um, involving the uh, the Olympic bomber from the Atlanta Olympics, um, I believe. So, look, this is a person of serious reputation and and USSF has, has acted because, Andrew, an investigation and the full fleshing out of the facts and and the systemic failures are what's needed here. Yeah. Well, Sally Yates was the deputy attorney general. That's right. Yeah, um, she so, was. You know, and, and the other thing that I was kind of thinking about with this, this is sort of an ancillary, like a, a kind of a, like a tentacle off of this, but just something I was thinking about is that, you know, like the media is often vilified painted as the bad guys you hear in press conferences you know the media you know they're misquoting me taken out of context the media it's an easy card for people to play generally speaking um and that's kind of gone on for decades but like in in this kind of situation the media is a weapon for good and you know we saw it here with the athletic like i mentioned the washington post with the richie burke story you know like this latest controversy this should be an example to women in sports throughout daily life that like when your superiors have no interest in hearing your voice, as was unfortunately kind of the case here, um, as this was kind of just buried under the rug, there is another option if you want your story out there and if you want change to happen. Because, like, in you know, there are journalists. These are – say what you want about them. The vast majority are objective professionals who just want to be around the truth and help push the truth and have the truth be known. Um now, the concern here, which is not lost on me, is that not every woman wants their story kind of thrust into the public spotlight. Like, these are sensitive matters. They want them taken care of quietly, privately. Um, so it's very easy for me to say about someone else that they should be willing to kind of allow the worst moments of their life to be public information. But to, to that, I guess all I can say is that hopefully this current chapter that we're in will serve as a catalyst to change the way things are handled in the future. You know, these these are brave individuals that have stepped forward um, and showing their enablers that their complicitness in hiding these actions is basically the equivalent to those who are carrying them out. And um, we should give credit to Meg Linehan, of course, who uh, did the the investigation for the Athletic um, that led to this this all coming to light. Yeah. And um, and you wonder what the future of the NWSL, as it's currently constituted, is right now. Yeah. Um, well, it'll it'll certainly change. I, that was one thing that I kind of saw a little bit over the weekend of this idea that the league should go away. Um, I mean, I, I would need to hear more on that, of how that makes well, sense. Well, I think it makes sense. in A reconstitution or a new uh, league, a completely new league, with maybe even certain ownership groups not involved, Andrew, depending on the results of this investigation, and we find out how this happened, how it was allowed to happen, how it happened at multiple clubs, that's that's going to be key. Um, but... Maybe, maybe some some people in ownership who drop the ball in this are are not capable of running a sports team um, that needs to protect needs to protect its players. Yeah, and that's the question that I would ask for Merritt Paulson. You know, because the the quote that I read there from him from the statement that stood out to me was when he said, "Let me just go back and find it here." Um, Guided by, he said, we made an opaque announcement about not renewing Riley's contract as opposed to explicitly announcing his termination, guided by what we at the time thought was the right thing to do out of respect for player privacy. I would just want to know, did you ask the player? Like, did, did you ask them what they wanted? Did they want it out there? What if the players did? I mean, 
maybe this is information that I could just find. Maybe the players have spoken up on this, but like maybe they wanted it known. Um, so I, I don't. I I would want to hear an answer to that. Um, I think so too. But, um, this investigation is probably one of the most important things that's going to happen in U.S. soccer in the ever probably. Yeah, and so we'll certainly continue to watch this and and see what happens next with NWSL. Um, and what changes are made and, and how the investigation that Sally Yates is running unfolds. Because this is, like you said, this is a, a landmark moment, not just in, in U.S. soccer, women's soccer, but in American culture as well. Um, all right, J.J., we continue now. Should we bring it down the stretch and do a, a little red card man of the match? Let's do it. All right, let's start with this. Red card. Uh, you want to go first? Yeah, I shall. It's the statue that's been unveiled outside Ellie uh, <laughs> Galaxy's ground. Of Landon Donovan, their legendary player. And is it the worst statue you've ever seen? No. Is it the worst soccer statue we've ever seen of a famous and iconic player? Definitely not. No, that was Ronaldo. Ronaldo's mushed, grinning face. Probably one of the worst. But Landon's is... Landon's is problematic. First of all, they've given him the veiniest arms in history. I... Do not recall his arms being quite that veiny. He's in a moment of the poses, arms outstretched, a moment of exultation. He's just scored a goal. And at that time when you yell, yes, the features of your face can become more pronounced and contorted, especially as you're being involved in athletic endeavor for the last 90 minutes or 60 minutes or whatever. But they've put so many lines in his face and in his head that, Andrew, are you familiar with the show What We Do in the Shadows? Heard of it, never seen it. Uh, I'm currently watching it, and it's it's hilarious. The Baron, the vampire, the ancient, ancient vampire from what we do in the shadows, he has less lines in his face, and his face is grotesquely... It's, it's horrific. I, you can barely look at it. He has less lines in his face, and he's about 700 years old, than Landon Donovan does in this statue. The, uh, the arm veins are jarring. You don't. You don't think the face lines are are too? Landon Donovan I mean, doesn't look like that. <laughs> it's more the arm veins. Like he looks like, like when you're in kind of like science class, and there's in your science book is a picture of like what the human body looks like underneath the skin. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it kind of yeah. looks like that. Yeah, uh, which is frightening. Um, <laughs> but I, I, they gave him maybe a little more hair than he has. Oh yeah, but you got to be a little favorable. bit more generous. On the defects, like you know, I, I don't if, hate if I it as much as you. Made of me, I'd say, can we, uh, can we go easy on the? Oh, nose? you should be so lucky. Who do you think you are? No, but I'm saying, you know, could you trim the nose down a bit? Oh, you mean you would put in requests? You know, by the and by the time it's done, it's, you'd be Brad Pitt. No, I would just say, lay off the big schnoz, please. <laughs> that's what I would request. So that's your red card, huh? Boy, you got some nerve. Like you could sculpt something out of bronze. I couldn't. I, you know, and that's the other side to it too. I feel bad. I mean, I am yeah, not a bronze like smith. Is that what they call that profession? I'm not a smith of any kind. Well, here's my red card, JJ. It's you and me, but kind of mainly you. Um, on our last podcast, we spent some time 
almost going overboard in uh, our praise of Bayern Munich in the wake of yet another destruction of the opposition in the Champions League. You did, League. I didn't. Because uh, I had mentioned they were outscoring their opponents 39-2 to over their previous seven matches in all competitions. Uh, you went so far as to say that you were completely bored with them. You find them totally uninteresting, due largely in part to their obligatory success in the Bundesliga week after week, year after year. Well, yeah. well, a funny thing happened just a few days later, and this was the mush that I was referring to. They lost at home, no less. Yep, Eintracht Frankfurt's Philipp Kostic scored in the 83rd minute, putting his side up 2-1 and ultimately handing Bayern their first loss at the Allianz Arena in their last 30 home matches. I believe it was November of 2019, the last time they lost a game at home. It was also Frankfurt's first win in Munich since 2000, and on top of that, it was their first win of the season. They'd actually drawn five of their first seven, so they're actually kind of still having a decent year. Um, I don't know if you saw any of this game or if you saw any of the highlights of it. If you did not, let me just tell you, Eintracht Frankfurt goalkeeper Kevin Trapp was unbelievable in this one. That's the thing, is that Bayern were actually still pretty good. This guy in net just put on an absolute show. Bayern had, uh, they had 20 shots, 10 of which were on target. Like I said, they only scored once. He had one of the best saves I've seen in a long time, a header from Robert Lewandowski a couple yards out at, at just like full pace. Lewandowski got his full head on it. He's got the whole net basically gaping in front of him, and Trapp just like throws his leg out, saves it, also had a, an amazing stop on Leroy Sané, 1v1, and in stoppage time on a missile from Leon Goretzka, had another great save on him. Um, it was an unbelievable performance by him and Bayern lose. And all of a sudden, J.J., the top of the table in Germany is an interesting place. Uh, Munich and Leverkusen tied atop the table on 16 points. Just one back are Dortmund and Freiburg. Uh, so red card to you, J.J., for doubting the soccer gods and for me ushering in this jinx. Okay, uh- I like that. That was good. I, I, I like to be proven wrong. And uh, the Bundesliga is an exciting and vibrant league. Speaking of which, my... Caught offside's man of the match. Don't ever step on the voice, man. <laughs> I'm sorry. I completely forgot about that. Uh, my man of the match was uh, Tammy Abraham. The former Chelsea man can celebrate a stellar start to life in Italian football, Andrew. Ten games, four goals, three assists in all competitions. With a recall to the England squad. Amazing. He hasn't featured for Gart Southgate since November 2020. Uh, he's now leading the line at AS Roma under Jose Mourinho. So it's been a pretty good start for Roma. At, they do have two defeats in their last five league games. But still, they sit there in fourth on 15 points. And uh, yeah, Tammy Abraham. I remember a while where it was all about, can we find a home for Tammy Abraham? He's not going to fit in at Chelsea, but he's a good player. Well, $40 million and a move to Roma seems to have done the trick so far. Uh, I have a second part to my man of the match, Andrew, and it's the players of Stad Ren after their 2-0 victory over PSG yesterday. A PSG, Andrew, that had Neymar, Messi and Mbappe. A PSG that couldn't muster a shot on target. Now, here's what happened. Uh, Messi hit the crossbar with a free kick, but Mbappe and Neymar had two of the most comical and hilarious shanks you've ever seen. First, Neymar should have scored. Then Mbappe followed up with a similar blown chance. High and handsome their efforts were from about uh, eight yards. I'm being generous. Uh, then right at the end of the first half, having weathered the storm, Gaetan Labour sidefoots uh, volley home and it's 1-0 to the hosts. A really, really good goal. Uh, Laborde then turned provider, cutting a low cross back 
to Florian Tate, who side-footed home expertly just uh, the other side of halftime. So first defeat of the Uber Eats League 1 campaign for PSG, but they are still six points clear of Long in second place. Uh, however, Kylian Mbappe does enter the international break with no goals in four games, which must be his longest drought since I don't know when. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder, too, by the way, I'm suddenly feeling better about Tottenham's 2-2 draw with Wren in the Conference League. Um, at Wren, by the way. <sighs> Not so bad. Not so bad. But Mbappe was in the news today because he basically made it clear that he told PSG in July that he wanted to leave. And oh. so, you know, I, I, you can't help but wonder, like, is this just one of those classic situations of a guy who's just, like, head is not in it right now? Um he nearly took the heads off supporters with that effort um, in the first half. They were almost identical efforts, him and Neymar. It was it, it was just so funny how badly they missed the target. But, um, yeah, maybe this isn't working, he yet. says. Yet. Yet. That's the thing. My uh, my five-year-old, not to make this again about my kids, but my the, his kindergarten teacher, uh, we had our back-to-school night, and she talks about the power of yet. You know, I can't ride my bike. No, you can't ride your bike yet. PSG aren't clicking. No, PSG aren't clicking yet. The power of yet, JJ. That is some powerful, powerful teaching. She's a great teacher. Is the kind of positive reinforcement that we never got as kids, did we, Andrew? No, no, not not nearly enough of the power of yet. Um, let's see. Are you done there? Or you got more. No, that's me. That's okay. me. Over. Uh, my man of the match, JJ. I wanted to go f- go through a few good things from uh, the weekend in MLS. Some positive, positive things. We'll end on the positive note. That's what man of the match is here to do. Uh, NYCFC drew nil nil with Nashville over the weekend. So you're wondering, uh, that's a so, uh, so heck of a positive. Yeah, start very there. positive. Well, here's why it's positive. And with that draw, New England Revolution have clinched the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. A first round bye. And likely, not officially, but likely home field throughout the playoffs. They're on 65 points. The MLS record is 72. That was LAFC in 2019. New England has five games remaining. It is possible that they obliterate this thing. They are as good as we thought they would be before the season. Um, but it's you know how these things go, my friend. Do it in the postseason, or how much does it matter? It's going to be very interesting. It means nothing. If they don't do it in the postseason. Now, sadly, the second note that I was going to mention here in my man of the match has been taken by you and warped into a red card. I was going to give Landon Donovan credit on receiving his statue at Dignity Health Sports Park. But there is still part of this that's um, that, that I wanted to mention because something that was interesting to me in the ceremony around that. Um, a commissioner of a league doesn't usually lend credence to the idea that any one player is bigger than the league itself. But listen to what Don Garber said um, about Landon Donovan. He said, if Landon didn't make the decision to come back to Major League Soccer at the time that he did and come to the Galaxy in 2005 and tell the world that MLS was his league, that the Galaxy was his club, that he was going to help build soccer in this country, we would not be where we are today. That's a big statement. I don't know that he's wrong, but it's a big statement for a commissioner, I think, to say about one of their players Meanwhile, he's a good he's a good politician though. I I can only yeah, imagine fair. what he's going what he's going to do when uh, or what he's going to say when Joseph Martinez gets his inevitable statue. Um. Then JJ, there was this from Landon Donovan, and I don't know. Tell me what you think when you hear this, because to me, I couldn't help but feel like this is a guy who sounds like he wants to own a team. 
when he says, I'm not really one for accolades and things like this because I'm just always kind of moving forward in my life, but it has allowed me the opportunity to reflect a little bit, and I'm just really appreciative of the honor, but I'm appreciative of the 10 years I was able to spend with the key stakeholders, everybody in the organization, people around the stadium, and certainly the fans. Is that ever is that a thing you've heard before? Like when somebody's like accepting an honor like this, I'm appreciative of the, of the ten years I spent with the key stakeholders. Those were the first people he thanked. Oh, it's so weird. Where have we heard something like that before? I think we heard it in soccer. That, such that's, corporate, such corporate business speak. That's like never. A th- if I was ever fortunate enough to do anything in my life to a point that it warranted me receiving some kind of honor. Um, I would like that is just such a weird group of people to thank, like your teammates, your coaches. I I couldn't have this statue wouldn't be here today without the work of of those around me. The fans, of course, the key stakeholders were the first people he thanked. I don't know. To me, that if I don't I don't know enough about the business side of this to know, like how this all works, but it just felt like when I heard that, that seems like an ulterior motive to thank them first, but hey, maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm being cynical, and I don't want to be cynical. Not now. Not in the man of the match, JJ. Just felt weird to me. Uh, yeah. By the way... It's like it's like me saying, say something nice about our listeners, and I go, our listeners have, have been tremendous, really. They, they are somebody who really helps us to hit our key deliverables. <laughs> You know, yeah. corporate speak, nonsense. Right. Uh, it, it, it does bear By the way, he owns yeah. San Diego Loyal, does he not? He's he's in he's this world. Owner. Yeah, he's in that world. He knows yeah. the importance of the key stakeholders. Uh, the Galaxy and LAFC, by the way, did, they shared Friends, points. Friends, family, key stakeholders. 1-1 <laughs> was the final in El Trafico. Um, goals in the 11th and 19th minutes. That usually delivers, like, unbelievable epics. I don't know that this was quite one of those, but 1-1 was your final. And finally, JJ, one more here. Uh, MLS has delivered us another unbelievable goal. You thought Mo Salah's goal was the best goal from over the weekend. Uh, It was. uh, Joe Paulo has an argument to be made from the Seattle Sounders. His goal in first half stoppage time against Colorado. Just, Just wow. Just wow. Here's what it sounded like. Joe Paulo, again, another good run forward, and he's not made the center back. Still he goes. Still Joe Paulo. Inside the area. It's a superb individual effort from Joe Paulo. Nobody was going to stop the Brazilian. What a first half for Seattle. Three goals to nil. I mean, he took it about 65 yards from goal. And he dribbled past a couple guys, and then I think he kind of looked around. Like it, it seemed like he kind of almost wanted to make a pass, but there was only defenders around him and not really a teammate that was suitable to pass to. So he kind of just was like, oh, screw it. I guess I'll just try. And next thing you know, he's in on net. It's an unbelievable goal. If you haven't seen it, check it out on YouTube, on MLSsoccer.com, wherever. Uh, it's worth it. Brian Schmetzer, of course, afterwards spoke about it. Should I try to do it in my best Brian Schmetzer voice? Oh, please. It, it would be wrong not to. He said, uh, I watched it like eight times in my office just now. I mean, he's one against four. He dribbles down the field. Some some people don't think JP's fast, but he ran past four of their players. And then he's had the savvy at the last minute to cut the ball back against the last guy with his left foot on, in the box. And then you see Abu Bakar, who's a good player, trying to save the ball off the line. And the ball goes in. What a tremendous goal that was. Oh, you're darn tootin'. Thank you. Thank you. And that is Man of the Match. Fun show. Fun show. Wow, this was a great show. I'll tell you, we got from France to to MLS to the African Cup of Nations. Brilliant. Brilliant stuff. Um, Yeah. 
Meaty podcast. And now the international frenzy is upon us. U.S. soccer in action, of course, later this week against Jamaica. Um, I assume it's. I assume we will have a podcast after that, either late that night or early the next morning. So keep. Your we eyes. are because we are committed to our work, and because we love our listeners who constantly get us toward, you know, being able to call them key stakeholders, and help us achieve our deliverables. Key deliverables. This was fun, man. Uh, thank you to everyone who listened. Like I said, we'll be back most likely later in the week. JJ, to you I say. Take it later, fun boy. See ya. Take care, man. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. 